0: In 1973, J.A. Packer wrote a book that now has sold millions of copies and has influenced followers of Jesus throughout the world. The title of this book I'm speaking of is simply Knowing God. In chapter one, Dr. Packer sets out to address a problem that lots of people generally have with theology, which is, is it even relevant? Does it matter for my life? Right? And so Packer actually argues from the very get-go that theology is the most practical of any of the subjects you can master. He writes, knowing about God is crucially important for living, in our, living our lives, as it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square, and leave him as one who knew nothing about the English language or England to fend for himself, so we are cruel to ourselves. if We try to live in this world without knowing the God whose world it is and who runs it in the first place. Right? He, he argues that it is cruel for us not to know God and because we are in his world, right? This evening we continue in our sermon series called The Rise of the King. It's a journey through the book of Samuel. And as we have noticed in weeks previous, the setting of this story takes place near the end of the book of Judges. In the time of the Judges there is great injustice, disunity, fear, violence, and evil. It was a time when, and I quote, each person did what was right in their own eyes. You might say that the people of this time had political problems, that they had economic problems, that they had moral problems, and all of that would be true, but the Bible wants to emphasize that when you have social problems, at the root, you'll find a theology problem. Anytime you have social problems, the Bible will want to say, you actually, at the root, have a theology problem. Our theology, if our theology doesn't lead us to knowing God, to knowing his love, to knowing his holiness, to knowing his plan for all of this creation, then we end up doing what is right according to our own opinions rather than what's right according to God. And when we do that, things don't turn out well, right? It's, It's bad. So thankfully, our God is committed to rescuing us and he's determined to save us, his image bearers and all of his creation. And the book of Samuel that we're studying is is a pivotal part of the story of God's rescue plan. The text this evening is actually naturally broken up in this back and forth between uh, uh, showing us Eli and his sons, this corrupt priesthood, and the rise of Samuel on the other hand. And what I wanna do as we work through the text is just point out section by section some of the original meaning uh, so that we have a better grip of the text. And then I wanna circle back and show us why and how these things are relevant to us today. In order to do that, we better start off with prayer. So pray with me. Lord, we need your help. As we come to an ancient text with strange customs and a different language. And we, we believe that it's your word, that you want to speak to us through it. So we pray for the, by the power of your spirit that you would illuminate your word to us that you would work in and through me, yes, but also through our hearing as a community. We want to meet with you today, Lord. Reveal yourself, we pray. Amen. Here's the setting. In the midst of national upheaval, Israel is in trouble and looking to be without any hope. The book of Samuel narrows the focus to one family and one particular woman named Hannah. Like Israel, Hannah feels hopeless. She's married to a kind man named Elkanah, but she's unable to have children. Despite her grief, Hannah continues practicing worship. She goes to worship. She worships God. And there, at one of these worship gatherings, she prays and God hears and answers her prayer. And she gives birth to Samuel, her son. And when he's weaned, she takes him to the tabernacle at Shiloh, 19 miles from her home, and dedicates him to the Lord. She leaves him there under the care of Eli, the priest, where he's brought up to be a priest. Ironically, this nobody Hannah and her nobody's son are shown to be obedient to God. While, Hannah's, or while Eli's sons were raised in a priestly household who were surrounded by church stuff all the time, well, let's read about them. Section 1, verses, chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, verses 12 through 17. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling and with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest the meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, they must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, no, but you will give it to me, and if not, I will take it by violence. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. What an introduction right? Eli's sons are described as worthless men. Worse yet, when the narrator tells us uh, that they did not know the Lord, and they did not know the custom of the priests before the people. Now, that's a pretty damning introduction, over the past few weeks, uh, I know many of you, if you're parents, you've gone to your, your child's school open house. We've been to Whatcom Middle School in Parkview in the last couple weeks. Uh, this would be akin to being introduced to your child's teacher. Uh, let me introduce to you Mr. Jones. He's a worthless man who doesn't know anything about the subject he's teaching, and he doesn't know how to teach or interact with the students. Welcome to our class. I mean, that's, that's the introduction to these priests of God. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. And the problem isn't just that. Hophni and Phinehas are ignorant of the ways of the priesthood. They didn't even know God. And worse yet, they're shown to be evil. When the people brought sacrifices to the Lord, the priests were entitled to part of the meat. That's part of the Levitical law. It's part of their paycheck. But one of the ways they were... um, you know, they're only allowed certain parts of the meat and not nearly as much as they were taking. But the book of the law gave clear instructions about which parts they weren't able to meet and which part specifically was reserved for God. And that was the fatty part of the meat. Now, you might say, that's kind of gross. I always cut the fat off my meat, right? Uh, but it makes a lot of sense when you, when you consider what is the most expensive meat when you go to the deli at Hagen or to Carne the butcher shop, right? The, the cheaper stuff is like the chuck steak and the flank steak. It's very lean, isn't it? But when you start getting to that ribeye and the New York, that's what I'm talking about, you start to see that marbled fat through that beautiful piece of meat. Oh, and if you've seen the Kobe beef steaks that are at Hagen right now, they're like 30-something bucks a pound, but they're beautiful. It's like a piece of art. I, I know what to get me for a present sometime, but that's where the flavor is that's the expensive cut of meat that's the part that's reserved for god that's the part that these priests were taking before the fat was sacrificed to god before it was prepared they were taking the raw cuts why so that they could go have a barbecue later at their house seriously that's what they were doing they were despising the sacrifice of god And it's similar to why we give the first 10% of our paychecks like we don't we don't give sacrifices of meat anymore but you know before I budget vacation uh, expenses and a uh, cable bill and all that kind of stuff I I give the first 10% to God right it's the best part of the paycheck and then the stuff that's left over I can budget with right it's the same idea back in uh, in this time period where Hophni and Phinehas were taking more than their allotted share of the boiled meat. And when people came to sacrifice the raw meat, they would just take the best cuts before they could even give it to God. And if the people said, hey, that's not right. The law says I need to burn this before I give it to God. They would threaten these people that they're shepherds over. The, the people they're supposed to be caring for, they would threaten them with violence. And then we get this closing description of Hophni and Phinehas. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the young men despised the offering of the Lord. Let's get to some happier days, verses 18 through 21. Now, Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy, and he was wearing a linen ephod. And his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one which she dedicated to the Lord. And they went on their way home. The Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. What a contrast, right? Between the introduction of Eli's sons Samuel is presented as a young boy, literally a na'ar in Hebrew. That's what the word is there in the sentence. He's described as wearing this linen ephod, which is like a little like a little soccer penny, only it's not as low, and it's, it's like a little square in front of the chest. It's like a little, it's a little tank top thing. And the high priest would actually have 12 precious stones on his chest in front of his heart to remember to pray for the 12 tribes of Israel. Samuel, little boy Samuel, has a linen ephod. He has a priestly garb on. What's interesting is at the, ver- at the, at the end of verse 17, it says that Hophni and Phinehas, two grown men who were recognized as full-on priests, they're described as young men, or you guessed it, in Hebrew, na'ar. And the narrator seems to be using a play on words to do two things. One, to belittle Hophni and Phinehas on the side by calling them basically boys. He describes them as na'ar. But the other thing he's doing, the second thing, is that by using Naar to describe Hophni and Phineas and the boy Samuel, he's inviting us as readers to compare these two and to contrast them, isn't he? And there's quite a difference. Samuel is literally a young boy at this stage, probably under 10 years old. And yet he's wearing the priestly garb. He's ministering as an apprentice to Eli. And his mother Hannah, a woman who gave her only son to the service of God, was blessed and able to have more children by the grace of God. His family is on the rise. He's blessed by God. And what's ironic is that Eli blesses this humble Hannah and mentors humble Samuel, but he's totally failed in his duties to his own son's. When it says that his sons did not know the Lord and did not know the custom of the priests, whose fault is that? As they say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Let's continue on in the story, verses 22 through 25. Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear from the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For the Lord delighted to put them to death. We are told at this stage that Eli is very old, and the implication is that his sons have been acting sinfully for quite some time. By this stage, Eli is well advanced in years. And all that time, Eli hasn't done anything to stop this sinful act by his sons. Not until he gets complaints from the public, because that's when the pressure really starts coming. In fact, he doesn't rebuke them because of the way that they've mistreated God's sacrifices. And later we learn in the same passage that Eli is quite overweight. And a lot of people surmise that Eli looked past their abuses with the sacrifices because he was getting in on that barbecue. That he was actually benefiting by the evil of his sons. And when we talk about being complicit in an evil system, sometimes we look the other way, don't we? Because we benefit on cheaper items sold at certain stores that we know are probably not ethically made, but it just kind of, uh, I'm just going to benefit from that without looking at it directly. Eli's kind of looking the other way in this situation. But now we learn of another evil. Hophni and Phinehas have been having sexual relationships with women who are serving at the temple. And by the way, the nonchalant way that the the narrator describes women serving God at the temple without explanation implies that this was a common practice with no need for a commentary for the original hearers. Women likely served the Lord, um, and they clearly did, like In in places like Deborah, the judge, I mean, that was an exceptional, wow, here's this amazing woman leader, but it also shows us that they served in quite ordinary ways, because why wouldn't they? Uh, Women and men are all made in God's image, we learn from Genesis 1. Anyway, the plural use of the verb suggests that they had multiple abuses of these women. They had positions of power over the women, which makes their sin even greater. They're not just guys fooling around. They are abusers. And even if these relations were consensual, as we define that word today in the 21st century, according to the Bible, these priests were committing adultery with these women. They weren't married to these women. Eli realizes the magnitude of their sin and warns them, but he's far too late And he's far too soft on his sons. And by this stage, they just refused to listen to him. Their hearts were hardened. And I think this is a lesson for every single one of us. On the one hand, when we fail to speak up against sins like Eli should have done with his sons early in their lives, you open the door to people going down a downward spiral of destruction that eventually uh, so much momentum is built that it's almost impossible to stop them. On the other hand, his sons are not mere victims of passive parenting. They have chosen over and over again to sin against God and to sin against people made in God's image. And it is the law of life that your your actions will form habits and your habits will form your identity, who you actually are. Our habits will shape our hearts. Now, when it says that God desired to put these two men to death, it is not destruction of two individuals that makes God delighted or excited. It's justice. And it's protecting innocent people who are getting hurt that God delights in. God wants all people to thrive, but he will not abide others who seek to destroy people. And especially not priests who are representing God to the world. We get another standalone verse contrasting Eli and his sons. Now, the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and with people. We're reading about the fall of Eli and his sons and his family, and we're reminded here that Samuel and his family are on the way up, that Samuel is literally growing in stature and in favor with both the Lord and with people have you heard a phrase like that before? If you have, keep it to yourself, write it down. I'll I'll, I'll get to it a little bit later. Bonus question. So again, we see this verbal link between Samuel and Hophni and Phinehas. The word for greatness of their sin and the growth of Samuel's stature is the same Hebrew word, gadol. Gadol means large or great, and it's, while the corrupt priesthood is gadol in sin, Hophni and Phineas are great in sin, Samuel is growing gadol or great in the Lord. I just, I bring that up, not because you're going to necessarily remember what gadol in Hebrew means, because I want you to understand that the scriptures aren't just some boring history, and they're not just some sacred text, but this is this is amazing literature as well. Like God breathed these men and women who, who invested themselves in these scriptures and crafted something that uh, are a wonder of literature as well. This just beautiful stuff. So I want you to pick up some of these little nuances. Finally, we reach the sad denouncement on Eli and his family. And this is a longer section. It's the last section. Now Eli was, oh, sorry. Uh, then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to the Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not skip a line? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the son of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I've commanded? Why do you honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choice of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel, and an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar, so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve, and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house and he will walk before my anointed always. Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please assign me to one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a single piece of bread. That's some hardcore stuff. While the sins of Hophni and Phinehas as individuals, that sin is great, but the greatest sin lays on Eli, their father, the priest. It was his job solely to protect the people and to secure the holiness of God's temple. Ironically, Hannah in Chapter 1 comes to pray. She prays so servantly in silent prayer that her lips are moving. Remember that part? And Eli, the high priest, doesn't even seem to have a clue about silent prayer and lip moving. And he just says, What are you, drunk? And she says, Master, don't consider me one of the worthless women. Remember that? Worthless women. Isn't it ironic that Eli's sons are actually described as worthless men, while Hannah is shown to be righteous? Eli is portrayed as a man without convictions. He's a doting father, and his lack of discipline allows his son's hearts to grow corrupt and selfish and unconnected to God. The ultimate sin of Eli and the priesthood is that he chose to appease his sons rather then honor God. You know, the scripture says that God provided them with status, with more than enough to live on by taking the parts of his sacrifices. He gave Eli's family honor by, by getting to officiate the worship gatherings of the living God. Eli's job, though, was to trust and obey God. And the law calls for the death penalty for both blasphemy, like desecrating the sacrifice, system like his sons were doing, and for open adultery in the holy space like they were doing with these workers at the temple. God's judgment on this family, and particularly on Hophni and Phinehas, seems harsh by killing them. But he is doing what Eli was supposed to do as the high priest according to the Levitical law. Eli should have had his sons executed according to the Levitical law, but instead the indictment on him from this man of God are these haunting words. Why did you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I commanded? Why did you honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest piece of every meat of my people Israel? Now the sad outcome to this horrible dishonoring of God is that Eli's sons die and Eli's house will not remain in the priesthood. But this is a Bible story. Which means that's not the end of the story. Judgment never is. God refuses to give up. And he will raise another priest, a faithful priest, who he says will serve God from his own heart. This story is a hinge in the biblical narrative that sets up God's judgment on the injustice of Eli's priesthood, but it's also the advent of Samuel, who will eventually anoint King David into the throne. It's more than just a history lesson or a morality tale about bad parenting or obedience to God. It has direct implications on you and I today. And I want to point out three of those implications in particular. The first one is the reminder that God absolutely hates injustice. He hates injustice. Sometimes it feels like the world is so corrupt that it will never change. Like we are just stuck in this mess. It seems like those who abuse their power always come out on top. While the rest of us struggle I wonder if doing the right thing of being the good guy is worth it in the long run. And and people may have felt that same way under the corrupt administration of Eli's sons. In fact, the implication is that they did this for so long, I, I guarantee you some people died under their reign without having never seen the justice in their lifetime, at least in their natural lifetime. How many years did they act this way? We don't know. But we do know that they were brought low in the end. And I want you to hear that if you have been a victim of abuse or injustice or discrimination or oppression, and maybe you're in it right now, I can guarantee you that God sees you, that he knows you, that he's for you, that he will bring justice. It may not be probably won't be on your timetable, but it will be the right timetable. And it may not be the way you want it to go down, but God will make sure it goes down definitively. God is on the side of the oppressed, which is very good news, but also a check to those of us who have some power, right? On the other hand, if you are a disciple of Jesus You have a unique privilege and responsibility of representing God to the world. Ask yourself, just honestly, like I'm not staring at anyone, I'm staring at myself, mirror. What is your reputation in the community? Are you known, like if you did an anonymous survey of people who actually know you, are you known as being a loving person, a kind person, Or do people know you to be critical and intimidating, uncaring? If you have a position of power, and I'm under the assumption that everyone has a position of power. You could be a CEO or a student council member. Whether you're a parent or a social media influencer, you represent God. And God hates it, people. He hates it when people exploit people. He hates it when we belittle people and when we try to gain unfair advantage of people. When we use a the means justifies the ends tactic on the things that we do, whether it's politics or business or manipulation of people, God will not stand for that. He hates injustice and he hates it when his priests turn others off to his love because of the way that we act. So this passage should give us relief for the injustice that we experience in the world or even in ourselves. It should give us a a sobering as well And and an invitation, not a condemnation, but an invitation for us to repent and say, yeah, I am in this area. I am not representing well, Lord. Help me, right? It's an invitation. Hear that. The second just really practical implication of this passage is that it invites you and I to ask honestly the question: Do I know God? Do I know God? Maybe it's hard to imagine that Hophni and Phinehas, who were these priests of God, did not know God. Maybe that's hard to, to wrap your mind around. I mean, these guys led worship in the tabernacle, they handled the sacred rituals and articles, of, they handled the scriptures, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. These sacred scrolls. They grew up in a priestly home. They would have received a theological education. They probably knew all about God, but they didn't know God. And our scripture reading this earlier in the evening just read to us from Matthew 7:13 through 23, where Jesus is talking about people who are gonna struggle and be shocked that they're not entering the kingdom of heaven. These are the kinds of people who did all kinds of religious things, even some to the point of prophecy and casting out demons. But in the end, Jesus will say, hey, I never knew you. Why? Because you didn't do the will of my Father. You didn't know me. Listen, we can know all kinds of things about God. We can learn all the books of the Bible and memorize scripture verses We can serve in the church and go to Bible studies and help people in the community, but we can do all of that stuff without knowing God. And that's a dangerous trap. So often we serve and we pray and we give in religious ways because we think, I don't know what you think, but sometimes we think, or I think, that God will bless us if we do these right things. Or that he'll be happier with us if we do these good things. We think he might answer our prayers if we put enough credit in by doing good stuff. And we think it'll make dad happy, right? Isn't that what we want? But if we know God through his son Jesus, we would know that he does love you. He does love me. And he doesn't love you because you do religious things. He loves you because you are his creation precious in his sight religious activities like worship and prayer and service and study they're all avenues that help us draw closer to god but religious activities are are, ought to be responses that come out of our relationship with god if we don't know him then all of this stuff kind of turns into empty rituals And so I ask again, do you know God? Do you know him? The third implication of this passage is the good news. That you can know God. And you can know him today. Because he's made himself known. You know, even before the book of Samuel, God made himself known through his personal encounters with men and women since the creation of the world. He used to walk with Adam and Eve and he talked to, to Cain and Abel. And he chose Noah's family to rescue the world. And he chose Abraham and he spoke with Isaac and encouraged Jacob and changed their lives. And he and he worked through Joseph to, to rescue his people in time of famine. And, and then he, he he met Moses in the burning bush. And, and through Moses' leadership and, and through signs and wonders delivered Israel from, from captivity and slavery in Egypt. God made himself known through the scriptures and through the judges and through the prophets. But in the book of Samuel, we begin to see the foreshadowing of God's greatest revelation to us, and that's the person of Jesus. When we got to verse 26, I read, Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with people. And I asked where we may have heard something like that before, any of the cohort kids want to yell out where you might have heard that before? David. With Jesus, yeah. Do you remember where? Like, yeah, when he was growing up. Exactly. Thank you, brother. So you yeah, had Luke chapter two. Jesus is a 12 year old boy, right? Kind of around Samuel's age. Yes. Yeah, share it. That's exactly the scripture I was going to say. Thank you. Good job. Exactly. Yes, so Jesus is shown as this one who's growing in stature and favor in Luke chapter 2. Jesus' mother, likewise, sings a song when she finds out that she's pregnant with the Savior of the world that's based on Hannah's song that we looked at last week. And Samuel is the one who would be the kingmaker. He would anoint King David, who was known as the Messiah, the anointed one, the first in the line leading to the Messiah of the world. David was the Messiah of Israel in a time of trouble, the anointed deliverer. Jesus is the Messiah of the entire creation. And so by having these verbal links between Samuel and Jesus, we're seeing that that this is the beginning of this trajectory of God's greatest revelation to us. Our text in Samuel encourages us to look forward to Jesus. And if we want to know God more, we can know him best through Jesus, God in the flesh. In Jesus, we see the power of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the wisdom of God, the humility of God. And in Jesus, we see the lengths that God is willing to go to in order to rescue us and draw us into his family. If you don't know God today or you're feeling like, you know, it's been a while since we sat down and had a good talk, I want to encourage you to get to know Jesus. I want to encourage you to get to know Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can start there and imagine yourself in those stories. Imagine yourself talking to him as a living person because that's exactly what he is. Next week, we're going to explore in a little more depth some of the postures that will help us to know God more. But for now, let's just invite him um, to be part of our lives. Would you pray with me? Lord, I know that deep inside every single heart, there's a hole with your name on it. There is a spot reserved for you. And we hunger and we thirst and we try and fill that hole with so many things and sometimes we try and fill it with God stuff, and with Jesus words, and with religious activity. And sometimes when we do that, we forget that you are a living and active, reigning God of the universe. You are a person. And I pray, Lord. I, I first of all, I thank you for this passage tonight. That's been a wake up call for me this week. I pray that it's a wake up call to my sisters and brothers here. That, that sometimes it's easy to slip into going through the motions. And I pray by the power of your Spirit, you would help us to relate to you, to know you, like we know our, our best friends or, or the people we share our most intimate thought with, thoughts with. I pray for an increased intimacy with you this week, Lord. And not just for this week, that's something that starts today and grows and grows throughout our lives. Bless you. Amen.